When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Hey everyone, I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director, and this is The Daily DC. Thanks so much for listening. Today on the podcast, Debate 2 in the Books. Yes, that second series of debates in Detroit. Night 2 was not at all like Night 1. If you saw Night 1, you saw what was an ideological divide in the party, and there was a real battle for ideas. Night 2 was an entirely different animal. It was much more... Throwing sharp elbows left and right across the stage, trying to make some character attacks rather than just keep it focused on an ideological battle in the party. It was much more about your record, your rhetoric, and especially if you were named Joe Biden and sitting, standing center stage and the front runner in the polls of the race right now, you took a lot of incoming. And, you know, I think... It is clear, and as we, I have talked about on this podcast for the last month since the Miami debate, Joe Biden's debate performance was the thing everybody was watching to see if he was going to be able to withstand the incoming, show some fortitude, and he did that. But Joe Biden survived that debate. He did not thrive in that debate. And I think what was as clear as Joe Biden fights on proves he can stand there and take it, be able to dish it out and push back a little bit and not seem so unsure of himself the way he did in the first debate in that lackluster performance, just as equally as he did all that. He also proved, I think, that this is going to be a long, hard slog for him. This is going to be a a real battle to the nomination. There will be no coronation. This will not be a walk in the park. And I, nobody obviously thought that that was the case. But I think that he, as much as it was important for him to take the incoming and dish it out a bit, he still contributed questions to whether or not he has what it takes to make it through this whole process. Is he as sharp and crisp as the Democrats are going to want in their nominee to take on Donald Trump? Is he as in touch with this moment in time as 
the party's grassroots are and, and those voters that make up Democratic primary electorates in those early states. I think those questions remain hanging over the Joe Biden candidacy, despite the fact that he was able to put to rest at least that he wasn't going to just crumble and his candidacy was somehow going to disappear into thin air after some second poor debate performance. But he he clearly showed his opponents that um, he's a target for them that is not one that's going to scare them off in any way, I think is the way I sort of saw his performance. Kamala Harris, for her part, learned what it was like to take incoming now that she was a more ascendant candidate in this race after that strong in this debate, after that strong performance in the first debate. And and I'm not sure anybody emerged from debate number two unscathed. It was a bit unruly in terms of the lines of attack every which way. But if anybody had as sort of clean as a night as possible without taking too much long-term damaging incoming, it was probably Cory Booker. His campaign has already announced that this 24-hour period after the debate will definitely be the 24-hour period in which they raise the most money. I mean, Cory Booker, by standing on the other side of Joe Biden, there in the center of the stage, he finally had a moment in this race, a big national television audience moment that he hadn't had yet in the race. And he clearly was able to use that to his advantage. So I want you to hear a bunch of sound from the debate. I want you to hear all of the, or not all, but a lot of the incoming that Biden was taking. There's the exchange with Cory Booker and the exchange with Kamala Harris. I'm going to play each one for you because I want you to hear how Biden handled what was coming his way. This first exchange is the one they had with Cory Booker on criminal justice. Take a listen. Why did you announce in the first day a zero tolerance policy of stop and frisk and hire Rudy Giuliani's guy in 2007? Mr. Vice President, there's a saying in my community, you're dipping into the Kool-Aid and you don't even know the flavor. Now, Booker clearly has a good one liner there with the Kool-Aid line, but it should also be said Booker's not done answering questions about his stewardship of the Newark Police Department. That is clearly something that is going to stick with him and be a part of his narrative. And he's going to have to probably come up with some better answers than he's provided thus thus far on that. But clearly he was able to push back at the oppo research that Joe Biden was unloading. Biden and Harris, as had been foreshadowed for weeks, went after it over health care. Here was that exchange. Let's talk about math. Let's talk about math. Let's talk about the fact that the pharmaceutical companies and the insurance companies last year alone profited $72 billion. And that is on the backs of American families. And under your plan, status quo, you do nothing to hold the insurance companies to to task for what they have been doing to American families in America today. A diabetes patient's one in four cannot afford their insulin. In America today, for those people who are overdosed from an opioid, there is a syringe that costs $4,000 that will save their life. It is immoral, it is untenable, and it must change with Medicare for all. Vice President Biden, your response. Real quick. I have the only plan that limits the ability of insurance companies to charge unreasonable prices, flat out, number one. Number two, we should put some of these insurance executives who totally oppose my plan in jail for the nine billion opioids they sell out there. They are misrepresenting the American people. This may not be the stuff of busing from the first debate, obviously, but these two are clearly sizing each other up for the long haul here and how they plan to 
carve each other up. And Joe Biden is making clear this full defense of Obamacare and making use of the fact that Kamala Harris, as we've talked about on the podcast, has been anything but crystal clear on health care. She's now rolled out a policy, though still doesn't seem to have a solid answer for why she thinks it's politically palatable to tell people with employer provided health insurance that they will no longer be allowed to do that under the system she envisions, which is not a full Medicare for all system. There is a role for private insurance. But again, if you like your current employer-based plan, you're not going to be able to keep it under the Harris plan, and that's something that clearly she's still going to need to answer for, and Joe Biden's going to make sure of that. Julian Castro, who served with Biden in the Obama administration, he was the cabinet secretary there at the Housing and Urban Development Department, and he took on Biden and the Obama administration on immigration. First of all, Mr. Vice President, it looks like one of us has learned the lessons of the past and one of us hasn't. Let me begin by telling you, let me just start out by answering that question. My immigration plan would also fix the broken legal immigration system because we do have a problem with that. Secondly, the only way that we're going to guarantee that these kinds of family separations don't happen in the future is that we need to repeal this law. There's still going to be consequences if somebody crosses the border. It's a civil action. Also, we have 654 miles of fencing. We have thousands of personnel at the border. We have uh, planes. We have Secretary, boats. We have helicopters. We have security Secretary cameras. Castro, what we need you. are politicians that actually up. have some guts on this issue. Thank you, Secretary. Mr. Vice President, please your response. I have guts enough to say his plan doesn't make sense. And New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio was trying to do anything to keep up the fight with Biden and stay in the debate. He's one of those one percenters who probably doesn't have much life force in this campaign from this point forward, hasn't qualified for the future debates. And it seems tough without that platform, how he's going to begin to be able to turn around his terrible poll numbers, not just in the horse race, but his favorability. He was protested in the debate. And so this is how de Blasio took the immigration fight to Biden. I guarantee you, if you're debating Donald Trump, he's not going to let you off the hook. So did you say those deportations were a good idea? Or did you go to the president and say, this is a mistake, we shouldn't do it? Which one? I was vice president. I am not the president. I keep my recommendation in private. Unlike you, I expect you would go ahead and say whatever was said privately with him. That's not what I do. What I do say to you is... And again, you hear Biden was pushing back at each one of these folks. He was able to take it, but Biden was was dishing it back out. I'm not sure what he was talking about there with de Blasio when he said that he would talk about a meeting he had with Obama and Biden wouldn't. I'm not quite sure what that was, but nonetheless, he was just trying to not just take it, but also dish it out. Kirsten Gillibrand seemed to have a really pre-planned, as we know, forced attack on Biden that just doesn't add up, it seems, in in the actual facts behind it, trying to accuse him of not being in favor of women working outside the home back in the 80s. Biden was not having any of that. Take a listen. You didn't answer my question. What did you mean when you said when a woman works outside the home, it's resulting in, quote, the deterioration of family and that we are avoiding? These are quotes. It was the title of the op-ed. And that just causes concern for me because we know America's women are working. 
The fact of the matter is, the situation is one that I don't know what's happened. I wrote the Violence Against Women Act, Lily Ledbetter. I was deeply involved in making sure there are the equal pay amendments. I was deeply involved in all these things. I came up with the It's On Us proposal to see to it that women were treated more decently on college campuses. You came to Syracuse University with me and said it was wonderful. I'm passionate about the concern making sure women are treated equally. I don't know what's happened except that you're now running for president. So I understand... And finally, like I said, Kamala Harris experienced a new level of scrutiny. She probably wasn't expecting this line of attack from Tulsi Gabbard, who had foreshadowed an attack on her commander in chief credentials. But Gabbard went full force at Harris on her prosecutorial record in California. And this was the Gabbard attack and how Harris responded. She put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. I did the work of significantly reforming the criminal justice system of a state of 40 million people, which became a national model for the work that needs to be done. And I am proud of that work. And I am proud of making a decision to not just give fancy speeches or be in a legislative body and give speeches on the floor, but actually doing the work. Harris's response in the spin room later on on a CNN interview was a little different. She, instead of fully defending her prosecutorial record, she kind of just swatted Gabbard away as an insignificant one percenter in this race and just didn't seem to think uh, she was worthy of a response. So she seemed to have took the attack on stage and and, and started really defending herself. This time, in l- an hour later in the spin room, Kamala Harris seemed to uh, think that perhaps she shouldn't be punching down. So there was a bit of a shift there in, in how she responded. But, I mean, it was a bruising debate in terms of everyone absorbing all that research and attack planning that their opponents had for them. But it probably wasn't a debate that moved the needle much. I mean, we'll see when the polls come out. But this seemed to me to sort of leave the current battles in place. And what this race is craving now, it seems to me, is for about half of these candidates to head for the exits and to get to one debate stage where the real contenders for the nomination can be sized up by the Democratic electorate at one sitting And I would expect that after all the criticism coming out of the Democratic debate last night about taking on the Obama administration legacy instead of keeping the context so clear about the need to defeat Donald Trump, I would imagine you're going to see an adjustment going forward that it may be a little less of a circular firing squad in the next debate or two. And people will train their ire more at President Trump, which is a surefire way to continue to keep Democrats engaged and and excite that Democratic base. But it doesn't it just kicks the can down the road, because when when we get to voting time and the debates in January of next year and people are getting ready to to make their final decisions, you can imagine the circular firing squad may indeed reappear. That does it for this edition of The Daily DC. Thank you all so much for listening. It's been an amazing week for CNN in Detroit. The team has been incredible. There is no Daily DC tomorrow. We're going to head out on a long weekend, but I hope you'll tune back in again right here on Monday. 
We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.